You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on this episode, I'll be talking to John Alexander, co-founder of the New Citizenship Project, to discuss his book, Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us. The book argues that humans are collaborative, creative, caring citizens by nature, and brands and governments need to stop treating us as simple consumers. Also joining me is Lisa Payne, Stylus's Head of Beauty, for the download, the section of Future Thinking where Stylus experts unpick the key cultural, business and industry trends of the moment that you need to know about. On this episode, we'll be discussing the latest developments in the wonderful world of deodorants. But now, let's hear from John Alexander. I began my career working in the advertising industry, but quite quickly started asking sort of deeper and deeper questions about what the role of those industries is in the world. I remember my first boss describing my job to me by saying, what you've got to remember is the average consumer sees something like 3,000 commercial messages a day, and your job is to cut through that and make yours the best. And I spent about 18 months going, I'm going to make mine the best. And then the next eight years going, 3,000 a day? And that sent me down this kind of rabbit hole of what are we doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers constantly and what and and what might it look like to put the same kind of energy into involving people in the world as citizens. And and now, particularly with you know climate emergency getting pretty real, but also cost of living crisis, meaning that people actually, a, large, a significant proportion of the population of the UK, certainly, and, and other countries as well, come, come this winter, actually not going to be able to be consumers, frankly. And what that's going to mean for our societies, I think, is is pretty profound. Tell me a little bit about how the, the book came together, because I believe you were writing it during the pandemic. Is that right? I certainly had started working with the ideas quite a long way back. So I founded a consulting firm called the New Citizenship Project with my business partner, Irene Akashis, back in 2014. We we were starting to work with these ideas. And from the very beginning, our our organizing principle was like, what if you use the same sorts of skills, but to involve people in the world and, 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 and invite them into their agency as citizens, not just sell them stuff as consumers. I had been intending to write for some time, but the day I really committed to it was actually the day, if people remember, the message changed in the UK and, and during the pandemic in May 2020, Saturday the 10th of May, it's etched into my brain, and um, and it's because, and maybe this is a way of sort of introducing the key ideas in the book. I, what I talk about in the book is a way of seeing the world through the lens of what I call stories, and the idea being that there are there are sort of three competing stories of the individual in society in play in this moment in time, and 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 the reason why that day was so so sort of triggering for me was was because I saw all three of those stories manifest in that moment. So if you think back to what the government message was in the early stage of the pandemic, it was stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And that that's a classic version of what I call the subject story. It's like protection in return for obedience, shush little people, do as you're told, and the, the big clever ones will look after you. And and what what was going on in the country at that time, though, was what I call the citizen story, which was like mutual people will remember like mutual aid groups, street WhatsApp groups. So the, the NHS first responder scheme, which was set up for two hundred and fifty thousand people to apply in three weeks and got and got seven hundred and fifty thousand in thirty six hours and crashed the website. And by the way, there was the Homes for Ukrainians website relatively recently that was designed for 50,000 or 80,000 people to apply in two weeks and got 250,000 in 24 hours again. And you're like, well, maybe we should start designing for this stuff, which is really the basic idea. So you had the subject story in the government message. You had us, the people sort of doing citizen stuff, like for 
but it wasn't just individuals and community groups. It was businesses reorienting themselves to produce sanitizer and PPE and, and schools kind of doing the same thing and councils reorganizing themselves to come in behind community instead of just providing services onto community. You had all of this stuff happening, but the, our government just couldn't see that because they were staring through the lens of these stories. And, and, and the only alternative they could see to the subject story was the consumer story, which is like people are self-interested. You have to appeal to their self-interested. And what we got in that moment instead with this stay alert, control the virus, save lives message, which was basically individual responsibility, look out for yourself, go back to your life. If you look out after yourself, you'll be fine. If they look after themselves, they'll be fine. And remember soon after that, we got eat out to help out. Uh, which is just like a kind of entirely sort of Freudian exp uh, like expression of this of this set of ideas. Like, how can you equate eating out with helping out, except in some weird world where you're trying to shush people into just going shopping? I went for a bike ride that morning for my hour of allowed exercise. Suddenly, I realised what these messages were, and I and I wrote a blog that day that went crazy. Like. You can't use the word viral anymore, but in this context, but it's like 700,000 people read it off my Medium page, which most gets three rabbits and a dog before that article. And it was like, this is a way of seeing this moment in time that people actually need and want. I guess it sort of gave me the belief and the, and the urgency to do it. But then, and then, yeah, and then it was a process of, of really committing and working with my writing partner, Ariana Conrad, who, who is a, somewhere between a, a coach and a ghostwriter. But I was just like, yeah, I need you to weigh in on this with me. Set up a mailing list and started holding like online brainstorm sessions when I was struggling with something and tried to do it in a way where the medium matched the message, where I was trying to write the book and, and you'll find it in the, in the sort of what replaces the acknowledgement section at the end, the kind of bit of a story of, of who got involved and how. But, um, it's yeah, it was, it was that day though, that I was like this, I have to just get this out of my head and into the world and, and see who makes what of it really. And so when you started, started writing it properly and, and researching around this idea, you were finding examples of this around the world. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what this idea of citizenship means and, and where you're seeing it being put into practice. Once you let yourself see, we sometimes talk in, in the team and new citizenship project about people like the veil falling from people's eyes, like the, the 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 consumer story getting out of the way of what you can see, and then it's everywhere. Like, and and maybe the the most succinct way to 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 sum it up is like in it's in every sector. There's a and there's a particular manifestation of it in government. First of all, I think it's like we're seeing the shift from this rise of participatory democracy experiments everywhere in the world from, from Chile, where there's now a process, a citizen led process to, to, to design a new constitution for the entire nation, which in turn was inspired by Mexico city crowdsourcing its constitution using change.org and, and some sort of open source version of Google docs a few years back through to Paris now has a standing citizens assembly, a hundred randomly selected Parisians representative of the city population as part of its governance structure. You've got the, the phenomenon of participatory budgeting, which first started in Brazil and, and has now spread all over the world. You, like, all of these things are, are ideas of how to run a government, how to run a country, how to run a city that, that are designed around uh, tapping into the ideas and energy and resources of everyone, not just sort of a, a, a clever group of people deciding for others or not just sort of orienting as a service provider. That's government. You, in, in, in the world of charities and NGOs, I think we're seeing a massive reclamation of the idea of these organizations of, as movements of people doing stuff 
with an organization in the background supporting rather than either the sort of paternalistic charity doing stuff for the little people or the kind of sort of commercialization of charity that we've seen in the last in the last few decades i think so that's a major macro trend i mean we've been doing work with everything everyone from parkinson's uk to the national trust in this space but i think the rise of movements like black lives matter and extinction rebellion friends of the earth are doing really fascinating stuff in in support of the of the climate movement now where they run a web site called Take Climate Action, which is entirely unbranded and a kind of open toolkit for local groups to, without needing to name themselves as Friends of the Earth, but to organize and, and run off that, largely inspired by how XR has worked and, and in partnership with some of the people in that. And then maybe most importantly for this conversation in the world of business, we're seeing the same thing, like the best businesses are actually seeing the people formerly known as consumers as, as sources of of ideas and sources of energy rather than just as consuming units. In the book, I go fairly deep into the example of Brewdog, for instance, and which has, they've, they've had some struggles and, and made some, made some pretty bad missteps along the way, but actually they effectively invented equity crowdfunding back in 2007. They open source all their recipes. They, they, they even run a training course to become a Cicerone, become a kind of an internationally qualified beer advocate and what that relationship with your customers lets you do or, or ch challenges you to do, I think, is operate in very different ways. So the Brewdog founders talk openly about the, the, the equity punks, as they're called, their crowd equity investors, challenging them to become an environmentally pioneering company, challenging them to become, be among the, the first living wage employers. And, and we've seen as they've behaved a little bit pretty badly in recent years, we've seen their equity crowdfunders and their employees holding them to account to their own language and ideas. But it's because of those relationships that they're such valuable organizations. The challenge to business or the opportunity for businesses in particular in this space, I think, is that when you involve people in the purpose of your organization, when you, when you give people agency in something, you create so much more valuable relationships because people are buying into something that, that, they, that they're part of in the world, not just buying products from you. And that, that opens up genuine answers to to big challenges in the world but it also can support a really really successful business it's it, it, it sort of ducks the apparent dichotomy between a sustainable society and an economically thriving society why do you think the consumer idea is failing or has failed or if you think it hasn't failed or why you think it nonetheless needs to evolve to this idea of, of citizen i think it, i think it is failing like the the you can't have a story in which success is to accumulate material possessions and, and deal with an ecological crisis. You can't have a story which says that people are narrowly defined individuals and deal with a loneliness ec epidemic. You, 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 can't have, you can't have a story that says that society's a ladder you climb and deal with, deal with pervasive inequality. Like these, these problems that are now reaching the point of collapse are, are actually, they're not, they're not like, they're not bugs in the system, they're features of the system. And, and I think that's, that's sort of where we're at. The phrase that I borrowed from, or sort of paraphrased from, from Thomas Kuhn's sort of seminal book, the, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he says something along the lines of like, you can't have paradigm shift without a paradigm to shift to. Like the, the, the collapse of a system is, is a necessary but not sufficient condition for the emergence of the next system. And so what, what's driving, what's really driving the citizen emergence, I think, is it's the shift to digital media and and and, and when i say that i don't want people i don't want you to get me wrong and think i'm a kind of digital utopian that technology will save us kind of thing because 
what what it does again is it is it creates the necessary conditions because tv was a as the dominant medium of society was it was a sort of one to many medium you could choose between the channels but that was about it in a society dominated by the internet actually it's a many to many medium and we do come to expect agency to shape things not just to choose between them and generationally i think that is a that is a big driver not not that gen z are heroically going to save us all but the sort of the idea of being a digital native is one where you expect to be able to shape things not just to choose between outputs that someone else gets to and i think that's a pretty fundamental pretty fundamental driver of this the challenge i think and, and the reason what i'm not saying in the book is that this will happen regardless like i think the way i would characterize the moment in time we're living in is actually one of a of a huge contest between these stories i think the consumer story is pretty much out on its out on its knees as it were it's, it's collapsing but in that time the uncertainty and the and and so forth that the collapse of a story creates is are, are in many ways the perfect conditions for the resurgence of the subject story and i think this is why we're seeing the strongman leader you know the 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 Boris's and the and the modis and the trumps and so forth that are all of a kind really are 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 more attractive in an age when when everything feels uncertain because they offer they offer a full certainty they offer protection in return for obedience as i said earlier in the conversation and i think in that context the further challenge that those who are sort of successful in the consumer story those who've risen to the to the highest ranks in in the existing systems have been conditioned to sort of see themselves as as saving people see it as their job to figure out how everything should work and 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 rescue the systems that we have i think we're in this moment where there is there is a citizen future is 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 real and visible and possible and it, and and making it more real and giving it language and and is really why i wrote the book but at the same time those in positions of power struggle to open up to it and see it because it feels like it, it demands something different of them from what they're used to. And if they don't open up into it and open power up and invite people in, then I worry that they do risk pushing people into the arms of the arms of the, the fascists, frankly. I mean, we're not that far away from that in the world today, and I think we should start to name it. More from John in a moment. Now the download, where I'm joined by my stylist colleagues to unpick the key cultural, business and industry trends of the moment that you need to know about. Here's Lisa Payne, stylist's head of beauty. We're working on deodorants currently, and it doesn't sound very exciting, but actually we've had so much demand for information and inspiration to do with this category. And really what's exciting is that it's becoming like a, a totally different beast. I think deodorants was definitely something that you'd kind of go to boots or a supermarket and pick up whatever was two for one. The chances are it probably wouldn't work very well, be full of chemicals. And now it just seems like everything is shifting towards a, a really natural profile formulas that are full of like lovely plant ingredients, no synthetic lab-based chemicals, and really interesting sort of formats that play with texture in refillable pots and things that are biodegradable. And even now that we're focusing so much on on the market being natural rather than, you know, based on aluminium, we're seeing that Formulators are moving away from baking soda or sodium bicarbonate, which is often used in natural formulas instead of aluminium to, to, to create that sort of odorizing effect. They're moving away from that because it's quite irritating to a lot of people. So they're thinking 
outside the box and using ingredients like kaolin clay and magnesium instead. So there's there's a lot to play for in this space and it's very exciting. I have experience of groovy new deodorants, actually. I've been using AKT. Do you know them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a magical product. I mean, it keeps you smelling nice for days. And I, I bet that the, the smells are like really sophisticated and different as well, aren't they? Yeah, I think the one I've got is supposed to make you smell like a walk through a forest or after the rain or something like that. Well, this <laughs> is the other thing. Yeah, I just I feel like everything's becoming a lot more sophisticated as well. I felt like you could in in the old days it was choosing between like lemon or Arctic fresh or cotton or something, you know, very I don't know, uninspiring smells. And now it's like really sophisticated, like fragrance profile. There's this one particular one that I'm writing about that I haven't tried, but I think it sounds incredible. It's called Saint New York. It's actually a men's brand and it has a natural deodorant that comes in amazing packaging, but it's got this really incredible fragrance notes with a top, a middle and a base, kind of like a, a perfume. So the idea is that it's supposed to like change throughout the day in terms of what it smells like, which is just something that you've been heard of like five years ago. So what else is going on? What are, are, are there any sort of new launches or new brands that you're particularly excited about? Well, I mean, August is normally really quiet for new launches. So it's really been interesting this year how there's been loads of new launches in lots of different categories. One of the things that I actually really liked recently was the launch of KBD Beauty. And they are super popular with Gen Z, especially in the US. It's a really big makeup brand. They had some sellout liquid lipsticks and they've actually totally reformulated them with this new formula is totally transfer resistant. And I mean, absolutely does not go anywhere. I tested them out on my hands. I washed my hands four times. By the end of the day, they were still there, which I thought was absolutely amazing. But they're not supposed to be cakey and dry and really comfortable to wear, really hyper, super pigmented. This is a really good example of what we're kind of calling the liquid lipstick revolution, where like five years ago, they were really either too sticky and awkward to, to use or really, really drying and sort of a little bit more like cement. And so, you know, really unenjoyable. And a lot of people sort of moved away from towards bullets or, or gloss. And, and what I'm finding is that all of the launches that are coming out now have these crazy great formulas that it's like all about the color payoff. They stay on your lips, but they also really, really comfortable. And I think that that's something that's really exciting for color cosmetics in general, not just lipsticks. We're seeing some amazing formulas for makeup. And then the other thing I wanted to point out is a brand new launched this week called Tea Elixir from Fresh. And this is something that is a, it's a serum and it's based on tea leaves grown in Madagascar that have the ability to adapt to really sort of harsh volcanic environments and what it promises to do is to bring resilience to the skin against sort of harsh external environments, which for us would mean pollution, sun, you know, potentially wind and rain and things like that. And that's also tapping into a trend that we're seeing specifically towards skincare products that are designed to improve skin barrier function and their resilience against the external aggressors and so I think that that's also something that we feel like that narrative is being understood now by the consumer a lot more than it was perhaps even last year. 
You can see my full interview with Lisa in video form on our YouTube channel. Head over to youtube.com slash stylusglobal and look for the download. Now let's return to the final part of my interview with John Alexander. What can a brand do, especially an established brand who, you know, will have entrenched ways of, of engaging consumers? What, what can they start to do? How can they start to think about this? So maybe just quickly spell out the third section of the book is basically devoted to what, what I call, what we call the three principles of participatory organizations, purpose, platform, and prototype. You can take the, take the boy out of advertising, but you can't take the illustration out of the boy, right? So the argument I'm making is that if you see people as consumers, the only ideas you will ever come up with are stuff people buy from you. The only things you will ever create are transactions people have, and you will be seeking to harness their self-interest towards some sort of clever ends that you've designed. If you start by seeing people as citizens, you start in a completely different place because you, your starting conception is of people as creative, capable, caring creatures who who your role is to unleash and to involve, not to sort of achieve it despite. And so, and, and the next thing you do is you ask, what are we even trying to do in the world? That's what I mean by purpose. What are you trying to do in the world? And, and, and then the next question that follows from that is how can people help? Because, and that's where, that's what I, what I mean by platform is like, what are the opportunities you offer to make it joyful and meaningful for people to participate in that purpose? And then prototype is really just saying, like, how do you build the energy for it? And to get, maybe to give a, an illustrative example, one of the kind of turning points for me in my career and the moment when I sort of actually decided I had to get out of the advertising industry was that I worked on a brief for Unilever to, to get people to look for sustainable palm oil in, in products. And, and I, we proposed a, a set of ads that used images of a Greenpeace protest where a Greenpeace protester dressed, dressed as orangutans and, and demonstrated on Unilever buildings, and which had actually instigated the roundtable on sustainable palm oil. And, and you speak to people at Unilever, they, would, they were openly acknowledging that. And so we took them at their word and we created ads that said, that used images of these protests and said, this was our wake up call, this is yours. And, and the ads in testing went phenomenally well. Like the, the people thought differently about Unilever, they thought of Unilever as an organization that, that trusted people and respected people. And, and they thought of, they, th they thought differently about Greenpeace. They thought differently about activism as something that was a, a valuable contributor to society. Uh, and they thought, and they said that they would look for, uh, for sustainable palm oil. And we were like, boom. And the ads went up into Unilever's sort of client ranks and never came back. They, they, instead, an ad came back that was mandated to run, the budget was cut, and the, and the ad that was mandated to run was a beautiful image of the rainforest with the line, what you buy in the supermarket can change the world. And it's basically, shush little people just go shopping, right? And, and that, that is the thing that businesses have to stop doing. They have to stop saying to people, your role is to buy stuff. Our role is to figure out, uh, as the clever people inside the offices, is to figure out how the world is going to be saved. And your agency is just to buy things. Like Unilever, if it really went, as a, as a huge business, if they really went, we're on a mission to make household consumption sustainable. We don't know exactly how we're going to do it. But we do know that if we had the ideas and energy and resources of all our customers around the world to bear on this, if we could start challenge prizes in every country where we could source the best ideas for product for the next generation of sustainable products, and we could, we could sort of, there's no reason why they couldn't crowdfund some of the early startups of those. If they could like teach people how to like run the courses, the entrepreneurial and, and this sort of stuff, like that could make a phenomenal business. I'm just making stuff up off the top of my head as well. Like the, it's this application really of like, what is your business trying to do in the world? Because if it only exists to maximize profit, it's not, it's 
not going to exist for much longer anyway. Once you have a sense of that purpose, how do you involve people in that? What agency can you give them? How do you make it joyful to get involved in that? And and then like, how do you experiment to build it? And any business that is is really trying to do something in the world can do this. It's just those who are simply out to maximise profit are like sitting on a ticking time bomb. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at wearestylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.